You're listening to The Globalist, first broadcast on the 2nd of January 2024 on Monocle Radio. The Globalist, in association with UBS. Hello, this is The Globalist, broadcasting to you live from Midori House in London. I'm Georgina Godwin. On the show ahead, at least 30 people have been killed after a powerful earthquake hit Japan yesterday. We'll have more details from Tokyo. Then... The real problem is that the way Israel is conducting this offensive is creating massive obstacles to the distribution of humanitarian aid inside Gaza. That's the Secretary-General of the United Nations, and we'll find out more about aid and medical treatment in Gaza. We'll analyse Kim Jong-un's bellicose remarks threatening annihilation of the US and South Korea. We'll be in Kyiv after Russia launched an unprecedented wave of drones against Ukraine. And we'll have a roundup of art news and flick through the international papers. That's all ahead here on The Globalist, live from London. First, a look at what else is happening in the news. Israel's Supreme Court has struck down a highly disputed law passed by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's right-wing government that rolled back some of the High Court's power and sparked nationwide protests. South Korea's opposition Democratic Party leader Lee Jae-myung was stabbed in the neck during a visit to the southern city of Busan today and was airlifted to a university hospital for treatment. And a court in Bangladesh has sentenced Nobel laureate Muhammad Yunus to six months in prison. Yunus denies the charges which his supporters say are politically motivated. Do stay tuned to Monocle Radio throughout the day for more on those stories. Now, we'll begin the show in Japan, where a 7.6 magnitude earthquake struck at around 16.10 local time yesterday, followed by about 90 aftershocks. Tsunami warnings were issued, but later changed to advisories. I'm joined on the line now by the journalist Gavin Blair from just outside Tokyo. Uh, Gavin, which part of the country has this affected? So this was the area around uh, what's known as the the Noto Peninsula, which is on the the west side of Japan, on the Sea of Japan, where it faces Korea. And the main damage was it was in Ishikawa Prefecture. There there was some damage in the in the prefectures nearby, but the worst of it was concentrated on that peninsula where the which was the epicenter of the quake. Mm. Now tsunami warnings were issued for the first time since 2011, when there were 40 meter high waves. I mean that was such a terrible event. The idea that it might have been happening again must have been deeply traumatic for many. They they fled to shelters. Indeed, uh, to be to be precise, that this was the first time that uh, giant tsunami warnings were issued for, since the, since 2011. Um, various earthquakes have caused tsunami warnings to go out, and the authorities here are sort of erring on the side of caution since 2011. And and uh, warnings do go out if there's any danger of tsunamis. One of the frightening things here was because it was closer to shore. The well, in fact, on onshore, some of the then the quakes, the follow aftershocks um, took place offshore, but the the tsunamis then hit fairly quickly afterwards. But they don't appear to have reached um, certainly nothing like 2011. But there are there is footage of of houses that have been dragged out to sea and are sitting on the shore uh, or close to the shore, 
So it certainly was powerful in some areas, but didn't reach the five metres that were initially mm. forecast. Uh, and do we have accurate casualty figures? We don't really. So as you mentioned earlier, there's 30 confirmed that is likely to rise. About 15 of those are in Wajima City, which is uh, on that peninsula. And a lot of those um, appear to have been around this area called Asechidori, which was actually a, a popular tourist spot. And a lot of wooden buildings and old shops, which is why it attracted so many visitors. And a fire broke out there and more than 200 buildings there have been damaged. So unfortunately, the casualty list uh, number is likely to, to rise there. There are certainly some people left under rubble and others missing. Mm. And, and more idea of the uh, structural damage? Uh, so J- Japanese new buildings are extremely earthquake resistant. They have very strict building codes. Um, but it's the older wooden buildings which which do the damage, which suffer the worst damage, of course. Although there was one fairly new looking concrete building which had completely collapsed on its side on, on that uh, peninsula. The other worry along that coastline is there are a lot of nuclear reactors. There are actually 22 reactors at six plants along that coast. And there's been a report of some spillage of um, radioactive materials at the largest one, uh, Kashizaki Kariwa, which is actually one of the largest plants in the world. Well, it's not currently in operation, but apparently there's been no radiation leak detected. Mm. And in terms of things like power and roads and airports, have those been affected? Yeah, hugely. So at the worst time last night, there were more than 30,000 homes without power. That's now been reduced to a few thousand. Um, it is pretty cold this time of year, so that certainly would have been unpleasant. And that's always a danger of uh, being a, coming a cause of further fires. Um, people end up um, you know, burning things to uh, to keep warm. In terms of trains, so the bullet trains to the area were actually reconnected fully about an hour ago. Um, there are certain major roads which are damaged. One of the local airports is closed because there are cracks in the runway. Um, and a lot of roads are unpassable, which is, of course, affecting relief efforts. There are about a thousand military personnel being deployed to the area. Um, but getting through is, is certainly a challenge. Gavin, thank you very much indeed. This is The Globalist. The World Health Organization says that Gaza has 13 partially functioning hospitals, two minimally functioning ones and 21 that are not functioning at all. The health system is entirely reliant on international aid and the WHO reports that hungry and desperate people have been stopping aid convoys in the hope of finding food, further constraining the ability of the organisation to supply medicines, medical supplies and fuel to hospitals. Well, I'm joined now by Dr Omar Ab. Del Manan, who's a paediatric neurologist based in London and co-founder of Gaza Medic Voices. Uh, Omar, many thanks for, for, for joining us this morning. Uh, last week, the WHO and partner agencies delivered aid to two hospitals. That was Al-Shifa in the north and Al-Amal Palestine Red Crescent Society in the south. They were trying to deliver supplies, but they were also trying to assess needs on the ground. What did they find? Good morning, Georgine. Thanks so much for having me on. Um, so, the reality is it is extremely difficult right now to do any form of uh, evidence-based needs assessment. Uh, but what they have uh, concluded is that the, hos- the, the healthcare system is completely catastrophic. The healthcare system we know has collapsed many weeks ago. There are numerous casualties. We are talking about 
the tens of thousands and obviously at least 20,000 have been killed and many more under the rubble. But what they have also noted is the lack of access to healthcare for many patients. So, you know, regardless of the, the effects of bombing and the effects of direct effects of war, there are many indirect effects with excess mortality, with uh, people not being able to access uh, antenatal care or pediatric care. And this is happening as a result of um, the complete destruction of the infrastructure that runs any sort of semblance of a normal public health or healthcare system. Mm. Um, and we know that ambulances have been hit, roads have been blocked. Um, Al Amal's hospital radio tower was disabled. Uh, how are hospitals receiving those who, who do seek medical treatment? This is a major concern, and this is something that we are hearing from speaking to doctors and medics on the ground, um, it, that many of the patients who would otherwise you know, get to hospital for strokes, heart attacks, uh, things that happen on a day-to-day -day basis, they are not able to access ambulances. So I have heard stories from healthcare workers and their families of, of people literally dropping on the floor and dying there and then at home from a heart attack and not being able to seek any sort of ambulance care. Um, so th this is a, a major, major issue. And part of that is not only the uh, effects of bombing, but the fact that much of the infrastructure has been destroyed. Many of the roads that lead from uh, Gaza City to the major hospitals from the north to the south have been targeted. Um, many of the medical envoys and, and ambulances that would normally transport patients have been attacked. We saw MSF ambulances being uh, uh, targeted by the Israeli Defense Force. We saw hospitals like Al Shifa being attacked by the Israeli Defense Force with, with them coming in and storming the complex. Um, I've been speaking to one of my colleagues who's actually on the ground there. Uh, they have gone in with a WHO team in the last few weeks. And what they have said is the situation in the hospitals is nothing like you could ever imagine and even worse than described by the news or on TV. She said that the ER, the emergency department, is full of casualties, most of whom are children. And there is nowhere, not nowhere to put any patient down as every inch of the hospital is taken by patients, their relatives, or internally displaced people and refugees. She described around 40,000 people sheltering in a hospital within 60,000 square meter uh, space. They have never seen anything like this in 25 years of experience of working in refugee camps and with internally displaced people in war zones. And uh, it is freezing at night. It is raining quite heavily. People are essentially living in a, a huge refugee camp, uh, but one much more densely populated than anywhere else on earth. And, and, the reality is the this is this is what working in a hospital is like, and the healthcare workers who are trying to deliver some sort of semblance of care to their patients are working under enormous pressures. They're having to deal with mass casualties, but on top of that, they are having to deal with their own families being targeted, their own uh, relatives being killed. And so far, we've lost 340 healthcare workers from our colleagues who have been killed directly by Israeli uh, bombing and 110 that have been illegally detained or abducted by the Israeli Defense Force. And this is unacceptable. It's unacceptable to see healthcare facilities being targeted when these are sanctuaries of life, where these are people that are providing 
care to their patients and trying to look after them and working in these atrocious conditions. I mean, of course, Israel says that Hamas has been sheltering under the hospitals. Do you give credence to that? So I've been to Gaza uh, at least five or six times since 2011. The team that I'm talking about has been there for over a decade. Many of us have decades worth of experience inside. We have never seen anything that amounts to these hospitals being as com- used as command and control centers in any way, shape, or form. Uh, and when you speak to Gazan doctors uh, who are of the utmost integrity, they will say that this is not the case. On top of that, you know, the BBC, Washington Post have both come out with very clear articles and very clear investigative reports that showed a lot of the uh, information that the Israeli Defense Force had come out with was false and was discredited. Uh, about these, uh, this idea of you know tunnels being built underneath hospitals. And even if there were tunnels underneath the hospitals, that does not provide an excuse to bomb hospitals with 70,000 people sheltering inside. We saw our Ahli hospital being bombed, le- leading to the death of 500 people at that time. We saw many other hospitals being uh, raided like Al-Shifa. We saw doctors being forced at gunpoint to leave their patients behind in intensive care units, and many of the intensive care patients in Al-Shifa and other hospitals died because of the fact that they were abandoned. Mm. There there was no one to look after them. Finally, I wondered if you could tell us about the role of your organisation, Gaza Medic Voices. Sure. So Gaza Medic Voices was uh, established on the 10th or 11th of October, essentially as a platform to amplify the voices of Gaza medics, healthcare workers um, who were witnessing and sending us testimonies of what they were seeing on the ground uh, in terms of casualties, in terms of the kind of injuries they were seeing. And we felt it was extremely important looking at the reporting in the in Western media, which at the time very much covered only what happened in Israel, was not covering the attacks within Gaza, to allow them to be able to project that. As a result of that, we have since uh, formed a, an even larger group called Health Workers for Palestine, which is essentially a civil society grassroots movement of healthcare workers across the world, across five continents, who are determined every week to hold vigils for their fallen healthcare workers in different cities, but also to be united working with charities and NGOs to essentially provide some sort of framework so that in the future, in future conflict, there is no more attacks on healthcare facilities, but also to push for a permanent ceasefire because that is the only solution to end this horror, this apocalyptic scenes in in Gaza and and to allow Gazans to get the help that they so desperately need. The aid that is coming in is insufficient. It is a drop in the ocean. Many of the trucks that you talked about are not making in. They are being turned back at the border. And there are 2.3 2.3 million people, 90% of whom are unable to eat one meal a day. Um, the World Food Bank has come out and said there is massive acute food insecurity and a risk of malnutrition to these children, and that is what is happening at the moment. Dr. Omar Abdel Manan, thank you very much indeed. This is The Globalist.
7.16 in Pyongyang, that's 7.16 here in London. North Korean state media has reported on a lengthy speech given by Kim Jong-un at the end of five days of year-end party meetings that set Pyongyang's military, political and economic policy decisions for 2024. Kim told the gathering he would no longer seek reconciliation and reunification with South Korea, noting the uncontrollable crisis that he said was triggered by Seoul and Washington. And at a briefing with North Korea's top commanding officers on New Year's Eve, Kim said his military should annihilate the enemy if provoked. Well, I'm joined in the studio now by John Everard, formerly the British ambassador to North Korea. John, many thanks for coming in. I wondered if we could actually start by looking back at significant military events in North Korea, what North Korea might call successes in 2023. There's been a lot of them. I mean, North Korea is approximately halfway through now a five-year military modernisation plan uh, where they announced they were going to produce workable cruise missiles, uh, solid fuels, ICBMs, and submarine-launched ballistic missiles, amongst many other things. Uh, They've now tested and demonstrated the ability to deploy a number of those. Uh, The Hwasong-18, the solid-fueled ICBM, has now been tested twice, and it it, it performed well on both occasions. Uh, The North Koreans carefully use what's called a lofted trajectory, where you fire the missile straight up and bring it straight down again, so it's not actually going to overfly anybody who might object. But the rocket experts say, with that... uh, height that it reached, it could easily reach most targets in the continental United States. And uh, it's now widely believed that North Korea has succeeded in miniaturizing uh, nuclear warheads. So it does have nuclear capability. Uh, It's deployed and tested uh, various types of cruise missiles including sea-launched cruise missiles, and it has also started to manufacture drones. Uh, They're not very good drones, but they they are drones. Famously, of course, also, it's launched a spy satellite. Uh, The South Koreans have been rather scornful of the satellite's capabilities, but it's up there and it's beaming something down. Mm. What were the key policy announcements then, apart from crowing about the successes uh, from this year-end meeting? It was a juicy meeting. A lot came out. Uh, As you said in your introduction, Georgina, the, the, uh, Kim Jong-un uh, announced a significant shift in uh, the North's relationship with the South. Uh, interestingly, uh, he said, w- we keep talking about blood brothers, consanguinity and everything, all Koreans together. In fact, we are two mutually hostile states. I think that's the first time he's described South Korea as a state, which will be picked up by the analysts in Seoul, no doubt. Uh, And he says there's no point trying to reach unification with a South Korea that uh, only wants South Korea, uh, only wants unification, sorry, by absorption and to destroy our state. Now, the Korean original is very carefully worded. Uh, It can be interpreted either as meaning that's it, full stop, we're not interested in reunification anymore, or we are not interested in reunification with the current hardline right-of-centre government uh, in South Korea that has said that the only way of reunification is through us in Seoul running you in the north. It looks to me as if he's trying to signal a strategic shift, but using a weasel wording so that if he changes his mind, he can do so without actually contradicting himself. And if the political situation globally changes, surely he may, I mean, he may well be stalling until his friend Donald Trump is back in power. 
the, the, the everybody will be watching the next. I was about to say next year's, this year's uh, U.S. presidential election very carefully, not least in Pyongyang. But he has other big doubts. Much cozying up to Russia, uh, and Russia is supplying oil, grain, and other things that North Korea desperately needs in exchange for North Korean munitions. But of course, you have to ask yourself what happens when North Korea hands over the last shell that it can produce. The Russians will probably just turn off the tap the way that the Russians tend to, and North Korea is in a bit of a quandary. So with that in the back of his mind, he may well be trying to keep his options open. Mm. I mean, he stressed that the military situation on the Korean peninsula has become extreme due to unprecedented, he said, uh, anti-North confrontations with the US. Uh, We do know there's been a lot of activity. Yawn. Yes, he said it all over again. Um, it, it's almost cut and paste from last year's New Year's speech. There's, there's nothing particularly exciting about that. Uh, a bit more worrying uh, is his pep talk to the senior leaders of the Korean People's Army uh, just yesterday, where he told them to get ready to destroy South Korea and to overrun the entire southern zone uh, if provoked, using uh, super powerful weapons, by which, of course, he means nuclear weapons. Uh, what is a provocation? Uh, what is the trigger? What would cause the Korean People's Army to launch a nuclear strike on South Korea and attempt to overrun the country. Very carefully, he didn't say. Mm. I mean, how seriously should we take the threat of deploying nuclear weapons? I don't want to depress listeners on such an early stage of this brand new year, but the threat is very real. Uh, In a world in which Russia can invade Ukraine and thinks it's okay, North Korea invading South Korea is entirely thinkable. And of course, it has to use nuclear weapons because not least because it's given all its munitions away to Russia now. Mm. It doesn't have much of a conventional force. Uh, And yes, uh, from Kim Jong-un's point, of view, sickening though it is, that would be an entirely reasonable option. I mean, he also says that North Korea must solidify cooperation with anti-imperialist independent countries. Obviously, he's referring to Russia. Who else might be their allies? Big excitement. Nicaragua is about to open an embassy in North Korea. I'm not sure that will actually tilt the global balance of advantage, but the North Koreans are signalling that they're they're cozying up uh, to all the people who who love and want them, of which there aren't actually that many. Uh, It's it's a step back to the comfort zone of Kim Il-sung's era, the good old Cold War. North Korea part of a gang, doesn't have to deal with nasty foreigners with their dangerous and radical ideas. Uh, It seems more and more unlikely now that the Western embassies in Pyongyang will ever be restaffed. Uh, The the body language coming out of Pyongyang suggests that the security goons will fight to the last man to prevent that ever happening. So we're back to a completely closed society. So how might these alliances with with Nicaragua, for instance, but but chiefly Russia, possibly Iran, uh, taken in a global context with the various other conflicts currently going. How is that going to affect the West? I mean, are we are we seeing a, a joining up here? We're seeing a joining up. How worried we need to be about North Korea joining up with anybody very much is, of course, another question. Unless, as we were discussing a moment ago, North Korea does start its own war. Uh, they've produced a, a lot of munitions which they supplied uh, Russia. Uh, just this morning, images released on Russian television uh, show beyond reasonable doubt that North Korean munitions are being used in conflict against Ukraine. Uh, it's not very good quality munitions, and they're probably going to run out fairly soon, 
but it is nevertheless an unwelcome factor in the Ukraine war. Beyond that, there'll be a lot of rhetoric and North Korea in the United Nations, any other forum it can get into, uh, will vociferously uh, support the Russian and Chinese positions. But North Korea joining up with these countries probably is not of itself going to tilt global politics. Mm. John, just before you go, I want to touch on something that happened in South Korea, which was the stabbing of the opposition leader. What more do we know about that? Not a great deal more. Uh, the poor man, uh, Lee Jae-myung, has been helicoptered uh, from Busan in the far uh, southeast of South Korea, where he was uh, talking to journalists, talking to the public, to a hospital in Seoul. The doctors are saying they do not think his condition is life-threatening, but they're worried in case the veins in his neck, he was stabbed in the neck, uh, are, are start start to, to bleed. Uh, the police have said that they will be making a full statement in the next few hours, but that the suspect, uh, an elderly man, is refusing to explain why he did this. Uh, South Korea, uh, generally a very well-ordered, very peaceful society, does have previous on this. Um, Lee's predecessor was attacked uh, what, the year before last, uh, also survived, but political violence is sadly not unknown. John Everard, thank you very much indeed. Now, still to come on the programme, we'll look ahead to this year's all-important elections in Taiwan and have a roundup of the latest news from the art world. This is The Globalist. UBS is a global financial services firm with over 150 years of heritage. Built on the unique dedication of our people, we bring fresh thinking and perspective to our work. We know that it takes a marriage of intelligence and heart to create lasting value for our clients. It's about having the right ideas, of course, but also about having one of the most accomplished systems and an unrivaled network of global experts. That's why at UBS, we pride ourselves on thinking smarter to make a real difference. Tune in to The Bulletin with UBS every week for the latest insights and opinions from UBS all around the world. This is The Globalist on Monocle Radio with me, Georgina Godwin, and we'll continue now with today's newspapers. Joining me in the studio is Simon Brook, who's a journalist and a communications consultant. Good morning to you, Simon. Good morning. The, the really big story today, of course, is Israel uh, and the Supreme Court blow for Netanyahu. How has this been covered within Israel? Yeah, so David Horowitz, who's the founding editor of the Times of Israel, is looking at the implications of this long-awaited ruling yesterday by um, Israel's Supreme Court, um, which strikes down um, a law passed by Benjamin Netanyahu's right-wing government back in July to bar judges from overruling decisions made by government ministers. And this was the idea that they would would be uh, overruled by the Supreme Court on the grounds of reasonableness. Um, And so, yeah, David uh, Horowitz looking at this uh, decision in the context really of the the war in Gaza and the Hamas attacks on Israel. Um, And uh, he quotes uh, Benjamin Netanyahu saying that he would not pledge to honour any future Supreme Court ruling to strike uh, to strike a law down. Um, he describes the ruling by the country's top justices would, that this would take Israel into uncharted territory. And David Horowitz argues that already um, the Justice Minister, Yariv Levin, has accused justices of doing exactly what he would want to do, which is taking into their hands all the authorities that in a democracy are divided between the three branches of government. And, and the argument here is that one of the things that 
because the the Israeli Supreme Court is seen as very independent, very uh, very uh, sure on its decisions, that it has this legitimacy. It's one of the things that actually has helped Israel, especially with regard to the Israeli Defence Forces and some of the actions that they might be taking. Mm. And I mean, this was a very, very narrow decision, wasn't it? It was, exactly. Eight to seven. Um, and uh, so this, this actually adds, I suppose, to this sense of... Uh, perhaps a constitutional crisis, even a sort of political crisis as well. Um, uh, Elsewhere, it's reported that the former president of the Supreme Court, Esther Hyatt, who was one of the judges who backed this ruling, has argued that the war has made the the ruling even more urgent as it concerns, you know, the sort of core principles uh, for which Israeli soldiers are risking their lives. But given the sort of the difficulty, the difficult political situation in Israel, this really just, uh, uh, plus the war, of course, this just stokes up the pressure. Mm. Let's skip to Le Monde now, which is looking at AI. Yeah, exactly. So interesting, uh, Le Monde reports that last autumn um, in the city of Nîmes, uh, there was a launch of a what's called a hypervigilance system. Uh, and this is cameras uh, that observe people doing everything in their day-to-day lives and Le Monde has been to the the, the nerve centre of this new high-tech surveillance system and there's a picture there, a very impressive picture of 76 screens across a 20-metre wall and there are sort of operatives watching what's going on. The the, the city's mayor, who the paper points out has been re-elected for the fourth time in 2020, uh, hails this as an example of a smart city so in real time they can see examples of bad parking or you know, uh, there might be problems with the way somebody's driving or something, but also things like optimising energy consumption. And this is something I've reported on before. You know, what is the point of having streetlights on in a street if there's no one there? Well, you can switch them off and then they only come on again should somebody walk or drive down it, which sounds great, doesn't it, of course? But the, the, the problem is you've got to balance that with the sort of the human rights and the privacy issues. And this is something that this uh, Le Monde report uh, looks at. Mm. And to Kosovo now, where uh, people are celebrating because they've joined the visa-free Schengen zone. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, it, it, exactly. So, very exciting times here uh, in Pristina. Um, so, hundreds of Kosovars, according to, to Reuters, rushed to Pristina airport to travel to EU countries uh, yesterday after visas for Europe's open borders Schengen zone were waived. So the, the Reuters reminds us that Kosovo's, Kosovo was the only country in the Western Balkans whose citizens still needed visas to travel to the EU. Um, and so uh, there's a lovely quote uh, from one visitor who's leaping on a plane I, I, as he's, he, he's interviewed. I do feel as free as a bird now that I can travel all over Europe, which is lovely. But then, of course, there's also a reminder that, that this has been controversial, that, uh, that in 2018, back, what's that, like five years ago now, isn't it? Uh, the EU had said that all requirements would be... Uh, would be removed or whatever, but France and the Netherlands held up the decision about concerns about uh, migration. And uh, Reuters reminds us that this is one of the poorest parts of Europe. And so I think given the concerns we've seen across Europe about migration, uh, this could be a controversial uh, decision. Mm. Let's end with the FT and a celebration of neon. Yeah, I, I love a, a bit of neon, I have to say. And this is a lovely story. Um, I have to remember, I don't know if you did as well, the excitement of visiting somewhere like Piccadilly Circus or, or Times Square and seeing that neon. And of course, it's a huge, always has been a huge feature of Hong Kong. So the FT visits Wu Chai, uh, Chi Kai, who is one of Hong Kong's few remaining neon 
neon craftsman. Um, and uh, the paper points out, you know, in Neon's late 20th century heyday, he and some other 30 master craftsmen made signs for pawn shops, mahjong parlours, bridal stores and restaurants. But um, in recent years, this has faded slightly um, uh, because of sort of concerns about uh, uh, the environmental impact. And so cheaper uh, technologies such as LED are, are taking over. But there is some good news um, that apparently there is uh, still demand for people like me who are neon enthusiasts. Master Wo is, uh, shows the reporter pictures on his phone of a white neon Christmas tree that he's made uh, for a hotel lobby. It took him a month to make it, in case you were wondering. And also he's produced signs from the Hong Kong Tourist Board. But apparently also neon is a big thing now for interiors, did you know? Absolutely. So... <laughs> I have neon in my bathroom and all the way up my stairs. How amazing. I'd love to see a tweeted picture of it, I have to say. But yeah, so it is the thing to have for for interiors. So it's interesting there. There still is hope for neon. Absolutely. Simon, thank you very much indeed. That was Simon Brook. Now, here's what else we're keeping an eye on today. Israel's Supreme Court has struck down a highly disputed law passed by Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu's right-wing government that rolled back some of the High Court's power and sparked nationwide protests. The law was part of a broader judicial overhaul proposed by Netanyahu and his coalition of religious and nationalist partners, which caused a deep rift in Israel and concern over the country's democratic principles amongst Western allies. South Korea's opposition Democratic Party leader Lee Jae-myung was stabbed in the neck during a visit to the southern city of Busan today and was airlifted to a university hospital for treatment. Lee, who narrowly lost the 2022 presidential election, was conscious and receiving emergency treatment after being attacked by an unidentified man whilst touring the site of a proposed airport. The assailant has been arrested. And a court in Bangladesh has sentenced Nobel laureate Mohammed Yunus to six months in prison for labour law violations for what he said was a crime he didn't commit. Yunus, who's 83, and his Grameen Bank won the 2006 Nobel Peace Prize for their work to lift millions out of poverty, pioneering a global movement now known as microcredit. His supporters say the arrest is politically motivated. The country will hold a general election on Sunday. This is The Globalist. Stay tuned. Now, yesterday, Kyiv announced that Russia had launched a record number of 90 drones in attacks on New Year's Eve that killed several people and left dozens injured. This comes just days after Moscow's deadliest strike on Ukrainian cities in nearly two years of war. Ukraine's air force said that the whole of Ukraine is on missile strike alert. Moscow claims the strikes were in retaliation for an attack on Russia's city of Belgorod, just a few kilometres north of the Ukrainian border. Natalia Gumilnyuk is a Ukrainian journalist. She joins me on the line now from Kyiv. Natalia, many thanks for coming on. I understand that there there may be some interruption because there are still strikes going on. I wonder if you could tell us what happened on Friday when Russian strikes claimed nearly 50 lives, including 28 in Kyiv. Uh, but uh, indeed, there was a very uh, severe attack all over the country, almost to every region and uh, with a huge amount of the ballistic missiles. So some of them were shut down by the air defense. But just to go on that, like this morning, it's probably a bit smaller scale, but not that uh, far away from that. So there were at least 10 ballistic missiles, Kinjal, which are known. 
attacked Kiev like just some hours ago, including we know that there are 10 people hospitalized and in Kharkiv one person is dead. So it's still an air alarm all over the country. Uh, so and there were an, a few numbers of the sets of the attacks with the uh, with the ballistic missiles, which of course, unfortunately, are more dangerous. And as we know, men in, in a lot of cases, the Ukrainian air uh, alert, air raid, uh, air defense can shut down. But when there is a huge amount, when we speak about the over the hundred strikes, uh, unfortunately, there could be some debris falling, mainly debris on the residential areas, and uh, that's probably the the, the biggest uh, uh, harm for for, mm. for for the population. Uh, now, Russia says this is in retaliation for the explosions in Belgorod. What do we know about that? Because Kiev is, is denying involvement here. Uh, therefore, if, if they keep denying, there is very hard for us, an independent journalist, to verify something and say. And Belgorod is the border. Uh, it's it's on the border with Ukraine, so that could be always, uh, you, you know, the discussion whether it would be the something the missed target because the Russian troops are there. Uh, but in generally, I, I think it's also still very important to understand how systematic are Russian attacks all over the territory targeted for the civilian infrastructure and the cities very far away from, you know, where the troops are and far away, as far away as Lviv in the west of the country and um, any other any other areas. Mm. Uh, we know that Kharkiv was hit over the weekend, including the hotel where many foreign journalists stay. Do you have details on that? Um, so, yes, but uh, to be honest, there is my concern because this hotel, it's, it's like a huge glass tall hotel in the center of Kharkiv. So, unfortunately, it's miraculous that it hasn't been hit earlier. Uh, there is always a, the, 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 the question, where would you stay in that particular place? Uh, so, uh, I, I would probably sound maybe cynical to say that it was its time uh, unfortunately, Kharkiv is so close. It's like like over 30 miles from the Russian border. So there is way more poor air defense in that in that city. And this is the second biggest city in Ukraine. So the, the it, it's very hard to defend the areas in this town. And yes, we had many injured and dead. But also, as I said, just this morning, like some hours ago, we, we just reading the news that another person has died and 20 and 40. Now I'm looking at that there are 40 um, uh, people who are injured uh, because of the attack on the uh, civilian house in Kharkiv now. Mm. And uh, Kherson, which was liberated a little over a year ago, that was also hit. Kherson is unfortunately targeted quite often. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's not really exactly the place where there is a Ukrainian army and from where it's attacked, but it just across the river from Russian position. So it really feels like the attacks on retaliation, not to let people live, uh, you know, more or less a safe, safe life. So it's, 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 it's also rather um, un- unfortunate, but it, it is. And like, as I'm like, keep repeating, currently the attack is still all over the country. You know, some attacks are uh, targeted some regions, but with the use of the ballistic weapon, it, it it's in fact can uh, can reach out basically mm. every place. Now, Vladimir Putin was speaking at a military hospital yesterday, and he pledged to intensify attacks against Ukraine. Ukraine's air force is warned of significant activity by Russian jets. I wonder if we know what they're up to, and if this is indeed the start of a, a big Russian pushback. 
Uh, it's true that we were expecting the very difficult winter and it doesn't mean that there were no attacks as we just discussed they were uh, the fact that there is Ukrainian army shutting down the, uh, the, 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 the missiles and the air defense operating maybe can create the feeling that the Russian uh, attack are not that devastating. But it should be taken account. This actually because there are patriots, there is this, there is that. So if not that, a lot of towns would be destroyed. So it's really a lot about the Ukrainian capacity to defend itself. And, uh, you know, the constant demand of Ukraine to really have more, you know, shells and opportunities, at least for the air defense, at least for the biggest towns, uh, which uh, we also can speak about, you know, Odessa, the southern ports, the ports which are the grain terminals, which are targeted re regularly, the infrastructure objects there. there is, so it's really a lot for the Ukrainians also to, to, to be ready to answer, but it's, it's, it's not something you can answer with empty hands. Mm. And how is the slowing of funds from the US and the EU impacting on the war? Uh, it's really for future, first of all. Uh, and uh, it's clear the longer, the, the, the less funds are there, the rest, less ammunition is there. There is a lesser opportunity for the Ukraine uh, to defend itself, which meaning it's just uh, um, pr prolong the war. In this regard, because neither Ukrainian can move and liberate any anything, or it also uses, you know, it, it, it's need to slow down in defending itself and need to. Um, so so it, it's it's really making the war longer. Mm. Looking to 2024, both the US and Russia will go to the polls. The Russian results are foregone conclusion, but the outcome of the American election could completely change the outcome of the war. What do you believe if Trump wins and are there preparations in place for that eventuality? Uh, I would be cautious to say totally change because, of course, it won't. Uh, to be very honest, it's quite clear that it won't make things easy, uh, not because we thinking politically about America, but we know that, you know, there is a particular minority in American House and Senate from the Republicans and Trump supporters who are openly opposing the uh, support of Ukraine. Uh, so uh, this is something Ukraine is very cautious. It's still, you know, trying to navigate, not to uh, be trapped in the inner American policy, because that's the only it is. It's not really that much depends on Ukraine, but, you know, criticism of Biden and things like that. Uh, but the concerns are that that still Ukraine is really dependent on the American uh, military aid. So the questions are wait, where to find the alternative. It would be less, it would be longer, but in the end, uh, which is not the best way, but Ukrainians are thinking, including the government, that in the end Ukraine need to rely on itself, find the alternatives. It won't be better anyways. So Ukraine till the very end would advocate and would ask for support with the arguments why it's necessary, why it's good for defense, why the, you know, liberating the t cities are essential. Uh, but um, that's something which is, you know, it's not even like an elephant in the room, which mm. everybody, you know, clearly understand and, and is concerned, but uh, mitigating the risk, knowing that it won't make good, but at the same time, it won't stop Ukraine um, from defending itself. And it's 
also quite clear that Putin also uh, hopes for for that and would wait for um, you know f- to 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 bet on who will win in these elections. So we won't see much progress from Moscow as well because they would be expecting Trump to win. Mm. And, and finally, um, Vladimir Zelensky has given a couple of year-end addresses. What's his message to the Ukrainian people? Uh, the current address was less cheerful and it was really a lot about the necessity for the Ukrainians who are capable to return to Ukraine to return to Ukraine and the address for those who haven't yet decided to go and serve in the army to go and to do that. Uh, He also tried to balance and also explain that Ukrainian economy should be afloat so everybody who paid taxes, everybody who kind of participate in the civic life in Ukraine, uh, and but also and who donate, who do something, are extremely essential for the country. But the general call was uh, more or less coherent with the idea for for the general draft and for mobilizing more people willingly to to come and serve. Natalia Gumenyuk in Kiev. Many thanks for joining us. Keep safe. You're with Monaco Radio. UBS has over 900 investment analysts from over 100 different countries. Over 900 of the sharpest minds and freshest thinkers in the world of finance today. To find out how we could help you, contact us at UBS.com. Now let's have a roundup of arts news with the arts journalist Amat Rose Abrams, who joins us in the studio. Good morning to you. Good morning. Uh, you are here in the studio and not in Venice, where I think we'd both rather be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, but the Biennale, of course. Uh, tell us more. Well, uh, now, obviously, it's every two years. So this year we have uh, an edition of the Biennale coming up in April. Um, and it's going to be curated by... Adriano Pedrosa, who is director of Maspi uh, in Sao Paulo, which is an amazing museum, very cutting edge, very kind of inventive curatorially, and they have a great focus on indigenous artists, which is quite new for Brazil. And this translates to the theme, which is uh, translates as foreigners everywhere. But I think it's meant to be kind of an inclusive look at people of the world is going to be the theme of the grand exhibition. Our representative is going to be the very beloved artist, John Acomfra, who works mainly in film, but some installation. But obviously we won the um, Golden Lion last year with Dame now, Sonia Boyce, being awarded that. So um, I wonder if we can win it twice. But John Acomfra is a fantastic artist and I'm really looking forward to what he does for the UK. Mm. Now, the art market was down last year. So how are galleries adapting their models? It's really interesting what's happening because I feel like there's people still want to make art and people really want to contribute. There's so much happening in the world. But for artists that are coming out of art school or are making certain types of slightly less commercial art, there isn't much space. So there's lots of smaller emerging galleries trying to find ways of representing these artists and bringing this art to people. So we see people maybe kind of platforming rather than representing artists, which means less investment, but they still get shows and people still get to see the work. We see kind of 
uh, online models of buying for people that are kind of more decentralized and more artist focused. And um, we also just see more artist run spaces around the world. So it'll double up maybe in some cases somewhere to live, but then also it will be like a studio gallery space. You shut it maybe when you can't afford to run it and then you open it again when you have something to show. And so I think that in its, itself is quite exciting. One quite interesting model, which has been going for a long time, is Condo Complex, which happens in uh, uh, kind of in and around London, where galleries host international guests at the end of January. And it's a selling show, but it's very much emerging, and it's also a lot about the kind of social side. And so I think that's that will be an initial test to see how that goes. And then I think by the time we get to June, when we get to Art Basel, then we can kind of see a bit more of a test of how if whether the market's improving in any way. Mm. Uh, let's have a look at what we should be uh, yes. seeing in the coming year. What's on in, in London? On in London, we have Yoko Ono, who's getting her show at the Tate Modern, which opens in the second week of January. I think that's going to be really exciting because we feel like she's getting it quite... She's so famous, but we don't actually see that much of her art. The wonderful Frank Auerbach. I'm so a big fan. I'm very excited about his Courtauld show, which opens in February. And then um, we have Art and Empire, which opens at the um, at the Royal Academy at the beginning of February, which also should be very interesting. Mm. What about Paris? Well, um, Paris, uh, we have inventing impressionism. For me, I never get sick of that wonderful kind of um, the study of that period because it's had such an impact on everything that's been made since. But it's about the kind of birth of impressionism and the conceptualising behind it. Obviously, they have the kind of wonderful collection that they have. So I expect at the Orsay that will be a show not to miss. Absolutely. Uh, And then to New York. Well, New York, uh, at MoMA PS1, you have the Filipino artist Pasita Abad, who uh, is a really interesting kind of textile artist, quite political, and she's getting a solo show there, which should be really, really interesting. We have the wonderful Joan Jonas, female artist, quite political. She often has a really big focus on um, the environment. It's very conceptual, but very kind of enjoyable, fun work. And she has a show at MoMA opening in March. And then we have the Harlem Renaissance show at the Met, which I think should be really interesting. I mean, we see it's explored by so many contemporary artists, including our Sir Isaac Julian, who um, has explored the Harlem Renaissance a lot. And then the kind of the relationship between New York and Paris has been a big focus uh, for a lot of black artists exploring that period of time, which seemed to be so kind of fluid and free. Mm. And so I think that should be a very interesting show to see explored at somewhere like the Met. And when you look back uh, over 2023, what were your big art highlights? My big art highlights were... I think I loved the Charter Biennial was fantastic. Um, it was a tribute to Okwi Emwazor. It was enormous, <laughs> but it was great. It was just a showcase of a lot of wonderful art and artists spanning the globe. I think there was someone there from every single continent. That was really, really interesting. And um, the Sao Paulo Biennial was fantastic as well. Um, and what was it? Oh, yeah, the Manet de Gare. 
was phenomenal at the Musée d'Orsay. I thought that was wonderful. And um, the Lisa Bryce show at Tadeus Ropak in Paris of painting. She is just the most phenomenal painter. And I just, I absolutely loved that exhibition. But it really was a great year for art across the board, I think. Mm. I went to see the, the Rothko in, oh, in Paris, yes, yes. which I found absolutely astounding. What a treat. Yeah. And just to be immersed in that work, because it's he's one of these artists we talk about a lot. But you think, how much of it have I actually seen? Mm. And yeah, just... and it just—I mean, you could absolutely. For me, it was the first time I'd really seen the point of Rothko. You could feel the colours vibrate. It was absolutely extraordinary. They are alive. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Uh, Emma Rose, are you an artist yourself? No, I'm not an artist. I like to work with artists. I've started working on curating a show with an artist that I can't talk about yet. But I really love that. I love to write creatively, but I've never made any physical art. Yeah. Uh, Emma Rose Abrams, many thanks uh, for, for coming on to speak to us. Few street names conjure up a more vivid mental picture than Broadway, New York's mecca for all things theatrical. And for the theatre enthusiast in your life that needs a place to stay in the city, Civilian Hotel, which opened in 2021, is the ideal suggestion. Paul Logothetis takes us to a theatre-goer's dream hotel, tucked away on West 48th Street. Besides going to the theatre for a show, there are few physical locations in New York City where a Broadway fan can bask in the thrill of the live stage. Joe Allen's is your go-to for restaurants, the Lily's Victorian establishment is great for a drink, and the Museum of Broadway provides the history. But for an experience that cuts deeper than a display to provide a blend of all three, the Civilian Hotel is a truly immersive experience that all types of theatre fans will savour. The Civilian was a parking lot on 48th Street near 8th Avenue when hotelier Jason Pomerank decided his next project here in Hell's Kitchen should be a gathering spot for the local neighborhood, particularly the theatre district. Pomerank wanted his hotel to create community, and he knew exactly who to call to help make it happen. Architect and designer David Rockwell, a Tony Award-winning set designer whose love for the theatre runs deep through his family roots. His mother was a vaudeville dancer and choreographer. Rockwell's projects span the globe and touch a variety of forms. His public spaces include the viewing platform at the World Trade Center, top restaurants such as Nobu Dubai in Barcelona, children's hospitals and standalones at events like Miami's Formula One race and the Oscars. Rockwell's passion is the theater, and Pomerang saw The Civilian as the perfect project for Rockwell to help him project something new. It's great that design has really evolved to a point where it's so accessible by the masses and so much visual stimulation between your phone and Instagram and whatever. But I think culture is a little harder. So you can always hire design, copy design, you know, create design, but that's not enough. But you have to add the culture component. And I think here, David's connection to the theater really provided that next step that integrated it and made it just not another nice and interesting looking hotel it had an actual personality and behind that personality were specific curations of people and artisans and you know people who are passionate about this community the results of this collaboration are on display immediately upon stepping inside the civilian and its theater-like entrance or vom as they call it in the theater world where you find yourself navigating a narrow hallway with marquee lighting just like a performer rushing to the stage once inside, the curtain lifts on Broadway thanks to the 250 theater mementos spread across the hotel, from sketches to set models, costume pieces to photographs, to artifacts from shows past and present. 
Rockwell's aim was to provide something unique for all visitors. It's the details that give it its personality, its edge, and it's an interesting thing in a world where images are available around the world at places that are manufactured to look the same. In this case, there's so much about this theater district that's an outlier and that's eccentric, and we wanted to embrace that. And having many, many theater artists help curate it helped steer us in that direction. And then every decision in the rooms, for instance, there was a chance to go for something that would make your experience just a little bit better, that would make reading from the bed a little bit better for a unique material for the countertop, the things you touch and feel. In those cases, we tried to lean into what the point of view was, so no decision is arbitrary. The 27-story, 203-room hotel imagines itself as a place where artists and audiences converge, meant to pay homage to the look and feel of iconic Broadway houses and hangouts, which it certainly does. Ground floor restaurant is populated with black and white pictures that carry you backstage on opening night. These are illuminated by lights where delicately crafted ink drawings have been sketched onto their surface to provide a portrait of New York City's Broadway theaters, with 41 in all. You'll find an analog board displaying a list of shows and which theaters they are playing at before ascending twisting stairs to make an entrance at the cocktail bar, which in itself evokes the theater's back of house. The restaurant's floor-to-ceiling windows glance onto 48th Street and an outdoor patio where large arches constructed from French-imported bricks provide a weathered look. Globe-like light fixtures are positioned between the arches to have you reminiscing about great theater spaces, like the Hirschfeld just a couple blocks away. The restaurant's decor includes approximately 20 miniature set models. These are created ahead of the show in the pre-production stage to help set designers outline their vision for the production. The detail and intricacies of these custom miniature models are impressive, from the can-can outfits and lace of a tiny Moulin Rouge production, to a baseball locker from Take Me Out, with its bats and balls and uniforms hanging on tiny little clothes hangers. These 20 or so models might have otherwise sat in a storage locker in Queens, but here are given new life, evoking curiosity and conversation thanks to their natural insight into the craft of theater artistry. The rooftop bar gives off a Ziggy Stardust feel, complemented by 360-degree panoramas of Manhattan, while the elevators feature unique wallpaper inspired by shows like After Midnight and Hamilton. And while industry insiders from crews to actors to creatives decamp for meetings in the secret garden room, celebrities such as Leonardo DiCaprio and Pamela Anderson are also fans of the civilian, with the Blue Room particularly popular. This intimate setting with its rich tone of blue, a color that evokes the theater, also helps to spur conversation. The space surrounds you with mementos from different theater productions, including the Phantom of the Opera's mask, to those red vinyl kinky boots, to the witch's hat in Wicked. The items are swapped out once a year, meaning visitors may see an original cabaret sketch one year and return to find items from The Lion King another time. There's always something to discuss and or reminisce about. It all strikes a chord to the authenticity of Civilian, with Rockwell clear that leading into Broadway culture was the key to this project. Creating a place that includes as many influences as this includes and trying to start from scratch with creating a place that fits into this rich, amazing, diverse community can't possibly be easy because every decision matters, every square inch matters, but it pays off because it's a, a place that's unique and really authentic to its location. This hotel could not exist in any other location in any other city in the world. And I think that makes it special. 
Paul Logothetis in New York there. Now, just before we go, just to follow on from one of the stories we've been reporting in the news, the arrest of Professor Muhammad Yunus in Bangladesh. He is, of course, the 83-year-old founder of Grameen Bank, uh, and he won the Nobel uh, Peace Prize for his work in alleviating uh, poverty. He's been at odds with the government in Bangladesh for, for a long time. He's been accused of milking the poor. And I just thought that if you wanted to know more about this story, we do have a lovely interview with him on file uh, where he talks about his book, A World of Three Zeros, The New Economics of Zero Poverty, Zero Unemployment and Zero Net Carbon Emissions. Uh, and uh, it's a very interesting read. And of course, uh, Eunice himself, a very interesting person. I think this is a story that is going to get a lot of coverage uh, because uh, this is very much seen as part of the political oppression going on in Bangladesh. And that's all for today's programme. Thanks to our producers, Laura Kramer, Sophie Monaghan-Coombs and Isabella Jewell and our studio manager, Tamsin Howard. After the headlines, there's more music on the way. I'll be back with The Briefing live at midday in London and The Globalist will return at the same time tomorrow. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening. <laughs>